We are thankful for uh, your service, for the freedoms that we have in this, this country. Uh, today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, today, our world is full of once great companies that are now dead and gone. Think about uh, car companies like Oldsmobile and Pontiac. They're gone. Or uh, in the airline industry, uh, Pan Am, TWA. They're gone. You think of other companies like Circuit City or Borders Bookstore, they're gone. Or what about Blockbuster? I remember as a kid, uh, going to Blockbuster on a Friday night to find a new movie was the highlight of my week. At its peak, Blockbuster had nearly 10,000 stores worldwide with a, uh, a revenue of almost $6 billion per year. In the 1990s, there was a small startup company that maybe you've heard of before, uh, Netflix. Uh, they were offering DVDs by mail, and they offered Blockbuster $50 million to partner. Blockbuster laughed, and, well, you know the rest of the story. As Netflix soared, Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy in 2010, and in 2013, they closed their remaining stores. And the tragedy is that what is true of businesses and companies can also happen to churches. America is full of dying churches. In 2019, there were approximately 3,000 Protestant churches that were started in the United States, but 4,500 churches closed their doors. Now, that was before COVID. The pandemic only accelerated this trend. Uh, David Kinnaman, the president of the Barna Group, estimated that one in five churches would not survive the pandemic. These were churches that at one time were, were vibrant. They were alive. They were churches where people came to know Christ and were growing in their faith. But somewhere along the way, the passion and the life faded. I heard this story about a cat that had been run over by a car. The cat belonged to a four-year-old named Gavin, and before he could find out about his cat's death, his mother quickly disposed of the remains. But if after a few days, Gavin asked his mom about the cat, and his mom got down on a knee, looked at Gavin in the eye, took his hand and gently said, Gavin, I'm sorry, but the cat died. And in an attempt to, to comfort Gavin, his mom said to him, but it's all right. He's up in heaven with God. Well, of course, <laughs> Gavin was devastated, but he had this quizzical look on his faith, face, and, and after a moment, he said, what in the world would God want with a dead cat? And today I want to ask, what in the world would God want with a dead church? Last week we looked at Jesus' letter to the church at Thyatira. So a first century mail carrier would have left this manufacturing hub of Thyatira and would have headed southward about 40 miles until they reached the Acropolis of Sardis. Sardis sat on a hill roughly 1,500 feet above the main roads. Its location formed an almost impenetrable fortress. The natural rock walls on the northeast and west slopes of the hill were almost completely vertical. The only access to the city was from a path, a very narrow path on the south slope. This made Sardis one of the most easily defensible cities in the ancient world. In fact, any attempt to capture the Acropolis of Sardis was considered absolutely and utterly impossible. 
So you can imagine the shockwaves that went throughout the known world when King Cyrus of Persia did the impossible. More than 500 years before the birth of Jesus, the king of Lydia instigated an attack against Persia. He was thoroughly beaten, and so he retreated to Sardis, where he felt quite safe and secure. King Cyrus and his men surrounded the city and camped outside of it for days, but the people of Sardis still didn't feel threatened. Sitting comfortably within their fortress, the citizens of Sardis became overconfident and complacent. Cyrus sent a handful of soldiers around to the north side of the Acropolis, and then slowly and carefully, one by one, they scaled the rock wall, which had been left completely unguarded. They entered into the city, and they slaughtered the citizens in their sleep. A disaster that could have been easily avoided had they been awake and alert. Three and a half centuries later, history repeated itself when Antiochus the Great captured Sardis using the same exact tactic. I tell you that story because history was about to repeat itself yet again. In many ways, the church at Sardis was plagued with the same problems as the city itself had been. We read about it in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and would you please stand for the reading of God's word. The angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The death that Jesus describes here in Revelation 3 at the church of Sardis didn't happen overnight. Just like the 4,500 churches that close their doors each year doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes the pride and the complacency that comes with success is often what spells the first step of decline. You lose a sense of urgency. The passion begins to wane. As the church grows, the, the church adds more staff, and it's easy for people to think, well, you know, I, I don't need to serve anymore. Somebody else will do it. The staff will, will take care of that. And so somebody who is actively engaged in serving begins to, to pull back a little bit. Or that, that passion that, that you once had for sharing your faith with your coworkers and your neighbors of inviting people to, to come to church, those priorities start to change a little bit. The excitement that, that, that you once had in, in reading God's word and, and being fed each day gets to the point where the only time you're opening up scripture is when you come to church on Sundays. And you see that it slowly happens over time. It's like a car that, that runs out of gas. It doesn't come to an immediate stop. It just kind of coasts along for a while. Francis Schaeffer said, most churches die 
long before they cease to exist. So what's the autopsy report of the church at Sardis? Well, let's look at what Jesus says first of all. They're focused on reputation rather than reality. Reputation rather than reality. Jesus says in verse 1, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This church at one time had a thriving body of believers, so much so that they had gathered a reputation for being a vibrant church. Perhaps they had a season of growth and revival where people were coming to, to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. They were turning away from idolatry. They were becoming Christians. Maybe there was a season where the church gave so sacrificially to help the poor that they gave to missions and, and they were helping meet needs in their community. But by the time they had received this letter, something had changed. The reputation that they had, that they had once had well, they still had the reputation, but the rep reputation was all that they had. Their reputation no longer matched reality. And so they were dead because they were no longer looking for God in the present. They were only focusing on what God had done in the past. For instance, have, have you ever spent any time in a church that, that just talks about the good old days? They talk about those, those glory days, about the way things used to be and how we need to, to get back to those days because that's the kind of people that we are. And the people are always reminiscing about how they can get back to, to what they feel like they lost and try to recreate some notion of what they did in the past. But the problem with that is that it really only communicates deadness, doesn't it? Because you, you want to follow that up with the question, yeah, but, but what's he doing now? Do you have any sense of what God wants for you right here, right now, in the present? They're so focused on what God did in the past that they don't think about what God might have for them in the future. And they assume that what was true all those years ago still might be true now. And they focus on their reputation. And so I just simply want to ask, what would that look like here if we became that type of church at Bachelor Creek? where over the course of time, we began to be focused on our reputation and this began to play out among us. Maybe it would, it would start off like something like this. Yeah, you know, a year ago, we gave $150,000 to local, national, and global missions. We sent mission trip teams to, to Mexico and Guatemala and the Dominican Republic. Our youth went and served at Woodburn Children's Home and they helped with, with tornado relief in, in Kentucky. We hosted several events downtown, and we were focused on meeting needs in our community. We are a church that's all about missions, and we are focused on fulfilling the Great Commission. And someone says, yeah, wow. Wow, that, that's incredible. But, but then a little bit of time passes, and it starts to become something like, yeah, you know, three years ago, we gave 20% of our budget to missions. I, actually, that was five years ago, wasn't it? Man, time flies by. And then a little bit more time goes by and we go, yeah, you, you know, 10 years ago, 10 years ago we gave 20% to, to missions. We're all about the Great Commission here at Bachelor Creek. And, and the person goes, oh, yeah? But do you still do that? Well, no, but we used to. We, we used to. And they go, well, it, it seems like you have no clue what God wants for you right here, right now in the present. You have, you have no sense of, of where he's taking you. 
Now, now don't get me wrong. Every church needs to celebrate what God has done. Every church needs to tell their story, absolutely, and we want to do that well here at Bachelor Creek. It's a part of, of bearing witness. But listen, a church can very easily move into a place of complacency and deadness. Because what God has done in the past no longer compels them to ask God for more in the future. And so the church stops asking God for more. What God has done in the past isn't igniting their imagination for where he might want to take them in the future. It it stops shaping their excitement and, and creating a hunger of seeking more of what God might have for them. And so there's no sense of saying, look at what God did in the past. What might he have for us next? There's no hunger. There's there's no thirst for the things of God. And so essentially, a dead church is one that no longer asks God to do anything. It's a church that that no longer asks God to move, a church that, that no longer asks God to have more of him, and they're dead. Because having more of him doesn't ignite the passions and the desires of the heart. And so a dead church is one that focuses on the past and is unwilling to seek God in the present. The second item on the autopsy report is that the church at Sardis operates on appearances rather than authenticity. And we have to dig a little bit deeper to see this. But if you just think about Jesus' earthly ministry for just a second, who received Jesus' harshest criticism? was the Pharisees. They were the ones who operated by appearances. They did things to be noticed by others. They did things to receive applause, uh, the praise, the affirmation of others. And they were all show because their underlying motivating concern wasn't, wasn't what God thought of them. It was how they appeared in the eyes of others. It wasn't out of this authentic desire to please God Which is why when Jesus teaches, he always tells everyone, if you want to know God, then do the complete opposite of the Pharisees. I mean, how would you like to be the guy that's used as the negative example in Jesus' sermons? It's like, hey, everybody, don't be like Chad. Like, if you do what Chad does, you're not going to know God. Like, (laughs) that's tragic. But that's exactly what he does with the Pharisees. He's telling them the same thing that he tells the church at Sardis. You're like whitewashed tombs, right? You look all pretty on the outside, but on the inside it's rotting. And so their concern was about their reputation before men instead of their reputation before God, which is why they have this preoccupation with keeping up their appearances. And that should give us a clue as we consider this church in Sardis and why they received Jesus' harshest criticism of all of these letters. Because they're focusing on appearances. Look at what Jesus says in verse 2. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Okay, so the issue isn't that the church in Sardis wasn't doing anything. It's that their works are hollow and empty. There were, there were churches that, that are full of all sorts of activities, but, but these churches, none of those activities actually stir the heart and their affections towards God. And the reason that they got to this place was because they compromised their values. If you look at verse 4, Jesus says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. So his implication is that the rest of the church of Sardis is in this condition because they, they soiled or they stained their clothes. 
And maybe this reminds you of the New Testament letter of James, where, where James uses this same sort of language when he talks about pure religion and what that actually looks like. And part of that is that we keep ourselves um, undefiled or unstained from the world. And so this is a real biblical idea that Jesus is bringing to light for the church in Sardis. And what he's bringing to light is that their values are stained because their values have been shaped by the values of the world. And this is a powerful image thinking about the, these clothes. Because here's, here's this church, and they get dressed up every Sunday, right? They, they go to church, and when they arrive, they're covered in the values of the world around them. And they don't come looking for an opportunity to sing their hearts out to God. And they don't come looking to, to unload their burdens in confession and receive the forgiveness that comes from Christ alone. They don't come looking to be strengthened in their faith through communion. There, there's no sense of approaching God with humility and a humble reverence in the presence of a living God. And instead they come looking for something else. Maybe they come looking to be entertained. Maybe they love being a a, a part of a church that, that, that looks pretty, it's, it's well taken care of. Maybe they just love the music, but they don't actually come looking to experience the presence of God. They value materialism. They like a beautifully adorned building, but they don't have any value for a life that is adorned with the beauty of good works and humble service. And so operating by appearances easily gives the impression of commitment. But on the inside, it lacks authenticity because there's no real, no genuine passion and love for God. And Jesus here, he's really just bringing up an old problem because you see this all throughout the Old Testament when the prophets address this issue time and time and time again with Israel. Isaiah says in Isaiah 29, 13, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. And Amos 5.21 says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me, away with the noise of your songs. And each time that, that God deals with these appearance-driven people that don't actually desire him, he always follows it up with the same thing. I'm going to come to you. And I'm going to come and I'm going to remove all of this from you. I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to take away all of those things. Why? Because I'm going to expose the complacency within my people. And I'm going to expose that their devotion was all pretense and there never really was a desire for me. And so what that tells us, if you want to have any sense of where complacency exists, all you have to do is introduce a little bit of suffering and you'll see it as clear as day. And that's why Jesus warns them in verse 3. If you don't wake up, I'm going to come to you like a thief. I'm going to take away all those appearances. I'm going to take away all of those things that you glory in. I'm going to strip everything away. I will purify my church. And for the people that actually desire me, taking away those things will be fine because they will still have me. But for those that glory in those things, when I take them away, they won't have me at all because they never wanted me in the first place. Jesus will purify his church. Did you know that Apple 
was almost on that list of companies that no longer exist. In 1985, Apple fired its CEO, Steve Jobs. Uh, Products from lower-priced competitors like Microsoft Windows took over the personal computer market. And Apple went into a decade-long spiral. Sales continued to plummet, almost reaching bankruptcy. The press began to write the company's eulogy until 1997 when Steve Jobs returned. Jobs changed the course of Apple by simplifying things. He put an end to the feuds, and he took an unheard-of level of interest in the details of product development. And over the following two decades, he was the driving force behind some of this century's most significant technological breakthroughs. With groundbreaking products like the iTunes Music Store, the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad, Jobs presided over an unprecedented period of growth. And today, Apple has a market cap of $2.64 trillion, making it the most valuable brand in the world. The story of Apple shows us that a company on the verge of death can indeed bounce back. And Jesus' words to the church at Sardis show us that a dead church can live again. In verse 2, Jesus hits the church at Sardis with five imperatives, five actions that this church must take if they want to once again be the church, the body of Christ that Jesus saved her to be. There's hope, but she must act quickly. It won't happen by itself. Things have to change. Urgency is required, but a dead church can live again. After all, God knows a thing or two about resurrection. So let's look at the treatment that Jesus prescribes in verse 2. First, he says, wake up. Wake up. Historically, we mentioned that the city of Sardis had twice fallen because of its military complacency. And Jesus tells them to not suffer the same fate. It's been said that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Wake up is an imperative that carries continual force. So it's not just wake up, it's stay awake. Theologian George Ladd says, this admonition suggests that the church was not yet entirely beyond hope. It was not too late to awaken from spiritual lethargy. There still remained a residuum of life which could be revived. But unless such a revival occurs, this small remainder will also fall subject to spiritual death. The exact same thing could be said to the 21st century church in America. Complacency is a certain recipe for disaster. Yesterday's victories are of little value for today's battles. Second, Jesus says, strengthen what remains. What little remains must be strengthened. It must be built back up. Why? Because we're told it's about to die. Specifically, Jesus says, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Now, though the quantity of their their deeds were probably lacking, it's more likely that the quality of their works were really suffering. They had grown content with a, a halfway mediocre, comfortable, complacent, and convenient Christianity. Their faith wasn't radical, it was, it was almost invisible. 
The unbelievers that they lived with and worked with and, and hung out with didn't see anything unique or different about them. The culture didn't oppose them. It just simply ignored them. Nothing they did was of real consequence or significance. They, they were so weak in their commitment to Christ that they didn't bother anyone. So let me ask you, what, what would happen if, if this church ceased to exist? Would anyone notice? Would anyone care? Or would there be such a massive void that is felt that it would leave an impact far and wide? Next, Jesus says, remember what you have received and heard. Remember. Like the church at Ephesus, Jesus calls the Christians at Sardis to remember. What are they to remember? The gospel. They needed to continually recall the truth of the gospel that they had received and heard. Listen, church, you don't advance beyond the gospel. The same gospel that saved you when you were dead in your sins is the same gospel that revives a complacent church. When former Green Bay Packers head coach Vince Lombardi tried to wake up his football team, he brought them back to the basics. He said that they needed to focus on the, on the football basics of blocking and tackling. So one day in practice, he, he gathered his team together and he held up a football. And he said this, gentlemen, this is a football. These are professional athletes. Gentlemen, this is a football. And what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, church, this is the gospel. Remember it. Again and again, every day, preach the gospel to yourself. Again and again, remind yourself of what Christ has done through his death on the cross and his resurrection. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. He experienced the wrath of God that should have been ours. He paid the penalty for sin that we should have paid. And he gave us the eternal life that we do not deserve. And according to verse 5, he will never blot out that name from the book of life, but he will acknowledge that name before his father and before his angels. So why? Why would we ever hold back from proclaiming such a Savior? Why would we, we ever settle for complacency? Why would we ever compromise the truth of the gospel and shame our king? Remember. Remember. And then he says, hold it fast. The idea is to hold on, to, to guard what you have received and heard. The truth of the gospel can be easily lost. It's a precious treasure that should never be taken for granted. Don't let it slip away. Because the truth is, is we never drift towards anything worthwhile. We never slide into truth. But we can slide into error. You slide and you slip into false teaching. You slide and you slip into moral compromise. But, but no, you, we, we never drift toward anything worth going. In the same way, you don't want to drift and add to the gospel. And you don't want to slip and subtract from the gospel. Keep it. Hold it. Guard it. Never let it go. Stay with what you received and heard when you put your faith in Jesus. 
And then lastly, he says, repent. Repent. My fear is that many Christians have not a faulty, but an inadequate view of repentance. They know that they repented of their sin when they became a Christian, but they have no idea how healthy it is for ongoing repentance to be a part of our Christian life. Repentance, which is a change of mind that results in a change of attitude and action concerning sin, it should continually mark our lives as Christians. Like the gospel, we never advance, we never mature beyond it. And if you thought that you did, you need to repent of that. See, it appears that the church in Sardis had forgotten the grace of repentance. And so as a result, they were in danger of receiving an unexpected visit from Christ. This image of Jesus coming like a thief is found throughout the New Testament. Several times in Revelation, chapter 3, verse 3, chapter 16, verse 15. You see it elsewhere in Matthew 24, Luke 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, and 2 Peter 3. Now here, coming like a thief does not refer to his coming, uh, his second coming where he comes for all. Rather, it's talking about his coming in judgment against his church. It's a striking image. But notice it's a powerful but grace-filled image. Repent now. There's no promise that, that you'll have time later. His surprise coming in judgment may catch you unprepared. And so if I could sum up Jesus' words to Sardis and his words to complacent churches in our day and age, I think it'd be this. A firm reliance on the gospel is Christ's prescription to kill complacency and ignite vitality in a dead church. It's getting back to the gospel. Maybe you're thinking, I'm a Christian. I know that I'm saved. I know that, that, that I belong to Jesus. Like, what's the big deal? Why does it matter? Because it isn't a game. This life is, is not a game. You see, in a game, you win or lose, and if you lose, yeah, you feel bad for a little bit, but then you go on with your day and everything's just fine. But what we're talking about here is the eternity of billions of people, boys and girls, men and women, whose lives hang in the balance. And I just simply want to ask, do we care? Or are we so self-centered and short-sighted that we can't see beyond ourselves? The gospel that saved you and me is the same gospel that compels us to go and make disciples of all nations, which means complacency is not an option. And so if you've coasted, if you find yourself in a season of complacency, then Jesus' words today to you is simply this, wake up. Wake up. God has given us a glorious calling, and if we don't live up to it, listen, no one else is going to do it for us. You can't pass it off to somebody else. The church is God's plan A for reaching our community and reaching our world. There is no plan B. So wake up. Wake up. Let's pray together.
God, I would pray that what is dead in us would be brought to life by the power of the gospel. Would we be so compelled and captivated by what you have done in Jesus Christ? the glorious message that you have given us and called us to be ambassadors of that, God, would it, would it compel us and motivate us, God, to live a life of mission where complacency is simply not an option? God, I pray that you would wake us up. I thank you for this church, God. I thank you for, for people who are alive and vibrant, but God, would you please help us to never be complacent? And if we get a sense that, that maybe we're heading that way, would we realize it before it's too late? The church is not a, a building. The church is people. And it requires every one of us living on mission because of what you have called us to. God, I pray that that would be true of us. Wake us up, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.